This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more. A lot of the times when you actually look at bank calculators online, they actually only show you the mortgage. They don't really show you all the additional costs that come with it, which is the insurance and the property tax and the maintenance. And all of that could add 50% of your cost on top of what you're already paying for the mortgage. This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're going to do two things. First, I'm going to share how our family decreased our not-so-fun expenses by $20,000, and then we increased our fun expenses by $10,000. Oh yeah, decreasing the not-fun, increasing the fun. You're going to like it. And second, we're back with another Family Fi segment. This week, we're featuring Christy Shen and Bryce Lung, who saved up $1 million, quit their jobs, and are now traveling the world, living on 40K per year. And they did this by age 31. They are Canada's youngest retirees, and they're going to share with us how they did it and how parents can also travel the world with their young kids as well. All right, let's jump into today's show. In order to achieve financial independence, FI, you need to first understand what your annual expenses are. That's how much money you need to live comfortably every single year of your life. Your annual expenses, they can include things like your housing, your transportation, food, utility bills, entertainment, travel, and the many other things that make your life your life. (laughs) For our family, I found that number to range between $60,000 and $70,000 per year. That number is after taxes, and it doesn't include money for saving and investing, like for a 401k or IRA or saving for the kids' college funds, things like that. With lower annual expenses, it would definitely be a lot easier for our family to become financially independent. If you're using the 4% rule to calculate how much we need to save to become FI, then we'd need around $1.5 million to $1.75 million. Oh, considering we have around, oh, $4,000 in a t- <laughs> about $4,000 in a taxable brokerage account at uh, 37 years old, that's going to take us quite a while. <laughs> A few years ago, I started interviewing some people on my podcast about their financial independence plans and their successes. I chatted with some couples that happily live on around $30,000 to $40,000 per year. With annual expenses like that, you could hit FI at $750,000 to $1 million. And that's a lot more feasible when you factor in compound interest into the equation, especially with our crazy bull market as of late. Who knows what it's going to do, though? Who knows? (laughs) As I continued with these interviews, I started to get inspired to lower our family's annual expenses. 
with lower expenses, our family would be able to hit Phi much, much sooner. I was also conscious, though, of not whittling down our expenses so much that we wouldn't have any fun together during the early part of my marriage and and the early part of our kids' lives. So, how can we decrease our annual expenses while increasing the fun in our lives? That became the question I asked myself. Well, here's what our family did over the last four years to make this kooky dream a reality. Let's start with the decreasing of our expenses. Number one, we paid off our mortgage. When we bought our home in 2013, my wife and I agreed that we'd pay off our mortgage in less than five years. She would get her dream home and I would get my complete debt-free life. This would allow us to own that dream home in our ideal neighborhood with a great school district and live mortgage-free. This four-year mortgage freedom process helped us to reduce our annual expenses by $14,000 per year. So I'll give you guys the comparison. In 2014, we spent around $21,000 on our mortgage taxes and insurance. And then last year, which was our first full year of mortgage freedom, we only spent $6,500. So about a $14,000 difference. So... That's one thing we did to decrease our annual expenses without losing our fun. Number two, saved money on groceries. In 2014, we were shopping at Kroger for our regular grocery needs. I'm sure you've heard of them. They're pretty huge, even even if you're in different parts of the country. I know they're based in Cincinnati, but I think they're national now. It's a great store with an awesome selection, but it's a little pricey. So after chatting with a few frugal shopper friends, I learned about Aldi. My wife was a little hesitant to go at first as I brought it up to her for a couple of the reasons that uh, I pre-warned her about. The store was, it's a little further away from our house. It was about 15 minutes from our house. Uh, You had to bring your own bags because they don't give you bags or they don't do the bagging even. And there weren't very many brand name items there as well. So if you wanted ketchup there's just the one ketchup you know there's not Heinz and the other hunts and all there's like not a million ketchups there's one ketchup and then the last thing you have to bring a quarter to get your own shopping cart <laughs> which is funny you get it at, you get it back at the end but uh nevertheless it was it was pretty different but she decided to go anyway because she sometimes indulges my kooky craziness and to her surprise she started to really like it Less choices meant a quicker shopping experience. And when you have little kids that you're traveling around with, that is a good thing. And the uh, whole bring your own bags thing, that actually filled up her environmentally conscious heart. So all good there. So my frugal experiment worked and we saved around 3000 bucks per year by making the switch to Aldi. That is a lot of money. And the stars aligned for my awesome wife as well, who stuck with me during this craziness because a brand new Aldi opened up to just minutes from our house just last year. So a big frugal win for our family. So let's compare the numbers. So 2014, we spent around $8,800 on our food and dining category there, which includes our groceries. And in 2018, we spent around $6,000. So 
about a $2,800 difference, about 3000 bucks. That's a big deal. Number three, we crushed the monthly bills. The next victims on my list were the monthly bills, and they included the cell phone, the electric bill, and the cable bill. So to save on our cell phone bill, this was a quick and easy one, actually. Nicole and I were on separate cell phone plans because we got married and we were on separate cell phone plans. We just never combined them. So by combining into a family plan, we saved around 400 bucks per year. And then for the electric bill, I'm going to attribute our overall annual savings to the Nest thermostat. I don't actually have any physical proof (laughs) of this savings, but I can't think of any other thing that we did in our electrical bill over the past few years, but buy that. And uh, the cool thing about it is when you leave the house, it automatically goes into eco mode. So it essentially like turns off the AC or turns off the heat when you're not there. And then, or it just goes to a comfortable level. So things don't freeze or anything or, or get too hot. Um, but, um, but when you're gone, you're essentially not using the electricity, which is great. So our overall savings between 2014 and 2018 was 600 bucks for our electric bill. And then lastly, we cut the cord on cable. It was simple as that. We said bye-bye to Comcast, and we said hello to about $600 of annual savings. So between all those things, uh, our overall bills and utilities from 2014 were around 7000 bucks, and then in 2018, about 5600 So we saved about $1,300 by making those changes. So those were the decreasing our expenses things, those top three. I'm going to share three things that we did now to increase our fun. Number one, we vacationed more. In 2014, we didn't, tra- we didn't travel very much. We had a newborn baby, and we went down to one full-time income instead of two, so Nicole could become a stay-at-home mom and take care of our two kids. Thank you, Nicole. Now that our kids are much older we want a vacation more, right? So last year was our first test run at traveling more and having more fun. So we increased our travel spending by $5,000 <laughs> from 2014. We went to Cabo San Lucas. Well, I guess we, we spent a lot of, we'd use points mostly on that one. Um, we went to Northern Michigan. We went to Los Angeles. That one was also on points, but we also went to Cancun and that was not on points. So it was pretty expensive. Anyway, it was an incredible year of vacation fun. So in 2014, we spent around $1,200 on travel. And then in 2018, we spent about $6,200 on travel. So it was about a $5,000 difference. Money well spent, in my opinion. Number two, we gave more to friends, family, and charity. So something that brings a smile to our faces and our family is giving more of our money. There are causes and charities that we're passionate about and family and friends that we love. When you have money to give, it feels incredible to be generous. So in 2018, we set a goal of giving 3% of our income to charity. We were happy to achieve that goal and teach our kids the importance of giving as well because they were there alongside us seeing who we gave to and how we gave. Overall, in 2018, we gave $3,000 more than we did in 2014. This is spending that makes us happy, and it makes others happy as well. So 2014, we spent $5,000 on gifts and donations, and then in 2018, we spent around $8,000 on gifts and donations. So again, money well spent. Number three... 
scheduled activities for our kids. We love our kids, man. And we want them to have a happy, healthy, and fun childhood. With that desire comes some investment, right? Last year, we signed our kids up for summer camps, swimming lessons, the soccer team, and of course, Calvin's last year of preschool. This increase was around $2,000 more than we spent in 2014, and we'd do it all over again. So in 2014, the expenses were $2,500, and in 2018, it was around $5,000. So uh, close to $2,500 difference on our bundles of joy. (laughs) So when you combine our annual expenses that decreased and the ones that increased we see a net savings of around 7500 bucks. That is not bad. So overall, from 2014, we were spending about $71,000, and then in 2018, we spent about 6300 something like that. So with all that increase of fun and the, and the decreases, it's still a savings of about 7500 bucks. So... I have a full detailed chart of all of this that I have in the show notes at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 143. And you guys can go check it out there. I've got all the categories from mortgage to home improvement to insurance to food and dining, everything that we spent from 2014 to 2018. And you can see, get a preview into how we, how we spend our money. Now, will $63,000 of annual expenses make it easier for our family to hit financial independence? Mm, Probably not by much. (laughs) But it doesn't hurt our chances either. According to the 4% rule we talked about earlier, that's about $187,000 less we'll need to save up to hit FI. That's right. A $7,500 difference in annual spending can dramatically affect the savings required to become financially independent. What I've learned by analyzing our spending differences over the past four years is that as long as we're increasing our happiness and decreasing our spending on the unimportant stuff, then we're headed in the right direction. And really, I'm already feeling pretty financially independent without actually being financially independent. Well, what do you guys think of financial independence? I would love to hear what you think. Is it motivating to decrease your annual expenses? How are you balancing it as a family? Please contact me on Facebook or Instagram at Andy Hill MKM and let me know. Or you could go to the marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 143 and leave us a comment in the comment section. I'd love to hear what you have to say. We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsors. Are you looking for someone to walk alongside you on your journey to family financial independence? Well, I would love to help you achieve your goals and help your family thrive. I work with couples, individuals, and families all around the U.S. via video chat and can assist in the following areas. Becoming debt-free, growing your net worth, crafting and sticking to your budget, reviewing Coast Fire plans, developing strategies to build generational wealth for your kids, and designing your future work-optional lifestyle. Doesn't that sound nice? (laughs) If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, you can book a time with me by visiting marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching. I would love to help you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. 
Visit marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more, or you can click the link in our show description. If you're looking to improve your financial situation, it helps when you're able to cut out unnecessary costs. Cell phone services are a necessity for sure, but we don't need to be overpaying for them, right? That's why I like Tello Mobile, a phone service worth talking about. We've been fully on board as a family with Tello for over two years now, and we are so happy that we made the switch. For us, the reception and data service is better than Verizon, and our costs were nearly cut in half. Tello runs on the T-Mobile network and it's wowing new customers like us with their rock bottom prices and stellar service. With over 10,000 reviews, Tello is rated as excellent on Trustpilot, and this is quite rare in the wireless world. Nicole and I went for the unlimited data, minutes, and texting plan for only 25 bucks per month each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Tello plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up. The code is valid until April 19th, 2024. Marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. Thanks for taking time to consider our sponsors, everybody. Let's jump back into the show. segment this month, we're talking about FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, F-I-R-E. This is a movement that's developed a lot of buzz lately, especially with millennials. Our guests today, Christy Shen and Bryce Lung, are leaders in this millennial revolution for FIRE. Christy and Bryce are Canada's youngest retirees. They used to live in one of the most expensive cities in Canada, but instead of drowning in debt, they rejected home ownership. What resulted was a seven-figure portfolio, which has allowed them to retire in their 30s and travel the world. Their story has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, and the Huffington Post. They've written a book on fire for Penguin Random House, and it is out this month. Welcome to the show, Christy and Bryce. Hello, right, thanks and thanks for having, for having us. us. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I talked about traveling the world. Can I ask where you are right now? <laughs> we are in Portugal. We spent the entire year in Europe this year, um, and uh, we're just coming up to the end of it. In a few days, we're going to be flying to Milan in Italy, and then after that, we're going to Bangkok in Thailand. So it's part of our whole um, chase the sun, and I never want to see a snowflake again ever in my life. Yeah, we're giant wimps who can't tolerate any cold weather anymore. So <laughs> I have losing the, our Canadianness. I have yeah. the same tolerance. I, I love that. I, lo- <laughs> I love that idea. Very cool. So let's talk about uh, what you guys did before you have this, this uh, trip and chase the sun lifestyle. Did you guys both work uh, nine to five before reaching five? Yeah, so we were both computer engineers um, living in one of the most expensive places in Toronto, um, doing what everyone else was doing, which is, you know, get a job, work until you're 65, get a mortgage, that whole adulting path that, you know, all millennials are supposed to follow. Uh, so, 
our, our jobs, his job was actually not bad. My job was pretty stressful. And I think it was because of me watching my coworkers get super stressed out to the point where one of them actually um, had major health issues and almost collapsed and died at his desk that I just had this wake up call that I was like, you know what, maybe the path that our parents have written for us all these time, all these years doesn't make sense anymore. Maybe, maybe that was perfect advice for back in 1980s, you know, when interest rates were normal and housing was affordable and jobs were actually stable. So I decided, you know what, I think we need to do something else. Maybe this, these rules don't really make any sense anymore. So you started to write your own. Yes, exactly, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that that's what kind of inspired you, not only um, you know your situation, but also looking at some of your coworkers. I mean, working yourself into a health issue is, I mean, that's that's just so sad to see. And I understand it wasn't just that; there were also other people in your life that were kind of influencing some of that fire as well. I mean, people that you worked with. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. The really scary thing is the coworker that almost died at his desk. Um, he basically had to get surgery, emergency surgery, and then um, he basically took a week off and then came back to work like it was nothing. Yeah, that have. that was really scary. He that could, was like, oh my god, what is going when on? We asked him about that. Uh, he said he couldn't afford to stop working even for an instant, and because the mortgage rate, the mortgage payments would like eat him alive, and then he would lose everything. So that's kind of when I realized that um, that people's people really don't know what the heck they're doing with money. There was some statistic that that um, that I read. Uh, it was part of this documentary that we're in. Uh, they, they said something like 40, 50 percent of Americans are like one paycheck away from financial ruin. And for the longest time, I didn't believe that until earlier this year when there was that federal government shutdown right. uh, that went for like 35 days. And then I'm, I'm watching it with uh, with some, you know, just kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Something about a wall. I, di- I didn't really follow the politics of it. But what was the most interesting to me about that is that the federal workers that were getting laid off, they were at food banks like two weeks into the shutdown because they were just out of food. And I was just kind of like, wow, people are really living paycheck to paycheck. And I and and, and just kind of like that statistic really is true. One missed paycheck, just financial ruin. And what I realized from that was that mortgages is the biggest reason for that to, for that to happen because it creates this debt uh, for the next 25 years that's tied to your paycheck, and you can't ever miss a paycheck or the entire or your entire life falls apart. Yeah. And that's kind of where I started. We started to go. You know what? Maybe mm. a house is not the best solution. It was almost like you had PTSD seeing some of your, your coworkers go through <laughs> yes. some of that thing. So your, your PTSD at least led into FIRE, which is good. But so what, um, what changes did you guys make sort of immediately in order to, in order to go towards FIRE? Well, we decided that we weren't going to put the money towards a house and we were going to stop going to open houses, which were just a nightmare in of itself because there were some house, open houses in which as soon as we walked through the door, the real estate agent would look at us and be like, like, you can afford this? Look at how young you are. Like, how much money could you possibly have? You could just tell they did not want to even show you the house. Um, and then on top of that, anytime you try to make an offer, it's bidding war immediately ensues. So the first thing we did was, okay, let's stop. We're not going to go to any more open houses. We're not going to put the money towards a down payment because it's just going to, you know, we're just going to get into more debt. And then my work is getting more stressful. It doesn't make any sense. So we decided to learn how to invest. So that, that was the first step towards 
fire. How do we make this money generate passive income so that we don't ever have to work again rather than constantly feed a house and prevent us from ever being free and tied to our jobs forever? After that moment, we uh, at the time, we, we, kept, we had been saving up uh, money for a while. We, are, we were really good at saving money because we kept, you know, we kept living frugally um, for the purposes of the know, house. Saving the house. <laughs> uh, saving up money for the down payment. And the down payment fund had gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger at that point to the point of around 2012, it was worth about half a million dollars. Wow. And, and, and at that point, at that point, we were getting ready to, um, to uh, buy a house or we had been trying to. But even in uh, even then, with that amount of money, it would still result in another half a million dollars of debt because the damn house would have cost a million or more. So at that point, we, we started uh, learning how the math works for fire. And um, with half a million dollars, and given how much we were spending just living in Toronto, which was about $40,000, uh, uh, as per the 4% rule, we needed a million dollars to retire. So uh, running the math through, I realized if we bought a house, we'd be paying that debt off for another five or 10 years, or we could be retired in three and at that point, it was like, I think I'd much rather do this. Yep. So, so we pulled the trigger, and and um, and and I didn't realize this at the time, but we had become. Uh, so when we gave our notice, uh, we were still 31, and when when we left, we later then realized that we had become like the youngest people in Canada to have retired, and it was all because we just all because we didn't buy a house, and that became really really. Um, like that went crazy in the media because the idea, because the idea of that home ownership is what adults do and home ownership is the best way to build wealth. If like our experience flew directly in the face of all of that and it wasn't theoretical, it was just like, no, I didn't buy a house and now I'm a millionaire. And then people kind of went, uh, <laughs> what? So that, that's kind of where the, that's kind of where the media stuff and the blog kind of exploded from. Well, let me ask some specifics then, because you said you built that half million dollars in savings. Where were you putting that money when you were building that up? Was that just in a regular savings account? Were you already putting that in like a taxable brokerage and then you realized the the potential of it? Where, where was that money sitting? Uh, the, the, the shorter, the, the short answer is it was mostly in a savings account for most of the time. I guess the longer answer is like around 2008 and 2007. Um, I didn't realize, I didn't know that we were going to be buying a house. So I started investing somewhat in the stock market using, you know, crappy mutual funds and like this kind of stuff, um, uh, right into 2008. Uh, so that, that, that caused a huge crash. Um, so when I, so when I, uh, got, when we got out of that, uh, we moved all the rest of that money into cash in preparation to buy, to buy a house. house. Then in 2012, when we decided to do the fire thing, we then shifted the money back towards investing. But this time we did it properly using, you know, an index portfolio um, with ETFs and, and all the kind of stuff that we advocate on the site now. Because we were actually putting that money in a savings account and trying to like work towards a house, we actually missed out on three years of the bull market run. And it didn't matter. And we still were able to retire within 10 years, right, as a result of not buying the house, which just goes to show that the goal of like sinking everything into debt really, really hurts you. And even when you make a mistake of not being in the stock market, you can still get out of it and retire early, despite yeah. the mistake that we made. Absolutely. You got you guys jumped in at a, at a good time to, to get back in and take advantage of that growth. So tell me, just to help everybody out, because we all hear index funds, ETFs, can you tell us specifically what you guys did when you made that switch over to uh, investing and saving for fire. What, what are your, what is your philosophy? You guys like index funds. Talk about that a little bit more. T tell everybody what that means. Sure. 
So when we realized that we were going to go back into investing, we uh, calculated and realized we were about three years away from hitting our target. So what happened there was we created a index portfolio that's about 60% equity, 40% fixed income. It's still pretty much the uh, portfolio that we use today. And um, for us in Canada, we then took the equity portion of it and just split it equally between Canada, U.S. and the international indexes. For Americans, you would probably want to go U.S. and the international indexes because there's no reason for Americans to invest in Canada. Um, but uh, and then the rest of it and, and then the rest of it is put into uh, bonds and fixed income instruments just to um, just to reduce the volatility and kind of smooth out the ride. And that's kind of where we uh, did it. That's kind of what we did. It really isn't anything complicated. And I teach people how to do this on our, on our site. In this, I ran this whole thing for like a year called the Investment Workshop, where I taught people how to like actually build a portfolio from scratch and exactly what to buy and exactly how to build a portfolio and exactly how to like um, rebalance and all this kind of stuff. And it really isn't that hard, but it's not obvious to a lot of people because, you know, we aren't taught any of this kind of stuff in school. So one of one of the things that helped me a lot, because I came from a background where, you know, I grew up in rural China, I didn't actually grow up in Canada. So I always had that scarcity mindset, right, where I, initially I was attracted to housing because the stock, stock market was terrifying to someone who has that background. So the only thing that really got me out of that terrified mindset was the fact that we were investing in index funds. So I realized that with index funds, your portfolio cannot go to zero because you're buying the entire market. You're not betting on individual stocks and you're not, you know, being had by some banker who's telling you, well, yeah, you're getting these crazy 20% returns. So being like very pragmatic about it and understanding how indexing works was actually really helpful in getting that mindset away from housing and towards investing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So at, at what point did you guys say, all right, we're good? You said 31 years old, but at what uh, amount of money did you get to where you're saying, all right, we're good, we're going to be done with this nine to five thing? So um, the, one of the major kind of um, insights about the FIRE movement is that your retirement date is not based on your age, but it's based on how much money you have. So uh, based on retirement research, the, uh, retirement, the traditional retirement planners have this thing called the 4% rule. And how it works is that it states however much money you have, you can afford to safely withdraw and spend 4% of it uh, each year and adjust it for inflation each year. And statistically, over a, a long enough time, like 30 years or something like that, uh, you have a 95% chance of not running out of money. So that's the technical definition. And uh, you can do things to make it like 100% success rate if you want, which is what we end up doing, a little, little bit of tweaks. But as a guideline, if you take how much money you spend and you multiply it by 25, which is the same as dividing by 4%, um, uh, and you, uh, that's how much your target portfolio needs to be before you are safe to retire. So for us, it was uh, we were spending about $40,000 and uh, $40,000 times 25 is about a million. Uh, actually, it's not about a million. It's a million. Um, so <laughs> once we hit that uh, target, that's uh, at that point, we kind of went, OK, I think we're done. And, and, then we st and then we started trying to figure out, OK, how do we wind down our careers and pack up all of our boxes and all that kind of stuff? That stuff took a few more months after that. But at that point, when we hit the target, we, that's when we, we kind of mentally made the decision to say, OK, career number one is now officially over. Now let's uh, let's figure out what the next step is kind of thing. I love it. And, and when did you guys come together in this whole journey? Have you, have you been dating from the beginning and then married later on? How did that all work? Um, we actually met and started dating in a computer lab. So yeah. I like to joke that it was 
total nerd love, yeah. <laughs> level 1000. We were, we were uh, lab <laughs> Yeah, in, in the university that we went to, which is the University of Waterloo, supposedly the MIT of Canada, but right. that's debatable. <laughs> um, and so basically when we met, um, we, I'd, like, we came from pretty different backgrounds in terms of how we think about money. Uh, so I, my mindset with money is really kind of like more of the hoarding mindset, which is more the scarcity mindset. And I think Bryce was more like a normal, non-crazy person. He was more like a regular person that, that was like more comfortable with, you know, investing and taking risks. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't call it normal or not normal, but, uh, Christy, uh, Christy's background, you know, she hinted, she alluded earlier that she grew up in rural China, but it wasn't just rural China. It was like abject poverty in rural China. Um, as part of writing the book, we kind of explore how her um, experience growing up affected how she deals with money. And we realized, looking at census data and historical income like numbers from China, from that area, that she, her family, her entire family was living on about 44 U.S. cents a day. That's how little that they had. And when you are, ha- you know, and, and you know. <laughs> Her parents still have this like thing. Is, Remember when we shelled out twenty cents for these dumplings? Like that's like that's the level of um, of poverty that they were dealing with. So when you grow up in that, money becomes a very very important part of your life, and it's not just about you know you become very good at counting it, saving it, knowing how much uh, to spend on things. Um, like I still don't know how much a pound of apples is supposed to cost. But she does, right? So she goes into a supermarket and she's like, ah, oh, that's 10 cents more than it should be. I have no idea. I'm like, that's an apple. Because I didn't have that kind of thing growing up. But on the other hand, it's kind of a double-edged sword because while she is very, very, very good at saving money, like making sure that you know you get the best deal on everything uh, that you like on bananas and whatever and then translating that into savings. On the other hand, her mindset is very, very, it's very hard for her to invest in anything that could be volatile. So the idea of having the stock market dropped, like, you know, during 2008, when we first started investing, I would literally put in $1,000 into the stock market. And the next day, there'd be like a thousand point drop on the Dow. And then my holdings would be down by $1,000. So it's, it, it was just kind of like, and now it's gone, right? So um, that mindset is something that I'm a lot more comfortable with, uh, because I know how all the, the business side of it works. And I know how the investment side of it works. And I know that it'll never go to zero and it'll always come back up. But for her, it was very difficult for her to say, put money into this thing that could cost you money. And um, so you really required the two sets of skills to, in order to make it to uh, where we are. Her ability to hoard and save money and then my ability to kind of be comfortable with the risk it takes to invest in the stock market. That sounds like index funds were your, your happy medium then. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No stock picking for us or anything like that. It's, it's because, you know... Um, Index funds is a controlled is a, is a way to control risk, right? When you bet on individual stocks, it is absolutely possible for your portfolio to plummet to zero if if a bunch of those companies go bankrupt. Uh, like you and and you never know. Like the the companies that are in the Dow right now, the, like there's literally none of them that are the same companies in the Dow from like 30 years ago. So companies die and they get reborn, and then uh, competitors come and snap them up all like all the time. So um, when you are investing in individual stocks, you have to actually be on top of that. You have to realize, oh, you know, BlackBerry is going down and Apple is going up. So you have to get out of one position and get out of, and get into the other position and all that kind of stuff. With index funds, it's just all done for you because as companies drop in value, they get they get kind of like uh, their market cap goes down. And as a result, they become weighted less and less and less in the index. So indexes that are market cap weighted, they naturally kind of. 
uh, rebalance for you. As companies go down, they own less of it. As companies go up, they own more of it. So, I mean, it's almost like an auto rebalancing thing that happens with index funds. Um, and as a result, you don't have to chase trends and you don't have to do these things. And, and also, you can't possibly go down to zero because the only way for an index to go down to zero is for every company in the United States to go down to zero, which means the Reds have invaded or the aliens are coming and it doesn't really matter what your portfolio is at that point because there's zombies at the gate. It, right. like, that, like that, it's all that's over. Like, We're yeah. in the Hunger Games, right, so exactly. pick up a hatchet and go. Yeah, in that, in, in that situation, the best defense is a samurai sword or a baseball bat named Lucille. That's right. I mean, that's right. Bone yeah. up on your walking dead if that happens, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, cool. So let's let's talk about the, the rent versus buy scenario because this is super interesting to me and it's, it's, it's obviously a big pinnacle to your success. You guys just decided to, hey, we're not going to spend a million dollars on a place to live that we have to keep funding over and over again and then repair everything. So overall, you know, let me let me ask you this question, because you said you, you've lost a few friends uh, with this opinion. But <laughs> oh, yeah. Why did you guys feel so adamant about it at the time? What, what, what was your what was your point where you said this is just not going to work out? Was it was it when you weren't able to send us uh, uh, develop enough cash to do it? Uh, what about living in a different part of the world and buying a more reasonable place to live? What, what were your overall thoughts on just buying being something that's you're never going to do? Well, one was actually doing the math and figuring out that a lot of the times when you actually look at bank cal- calculators online, they actually only show you the mortgage. They don't really show you all the additional costs that come with it, which is the insurance and the property tax and the maintenance. And all of that could add 50% of your cost on top of what you're already paying for the mortgage. And we actually saw evidence of this a lot with, with our friends, right? We have friends who brag about, oh my God, my house has gone up and like has doubled. It's gone up 50%. And then the next day you talk to them and they're just complaining about work and complaining about everything that they have to fix around the house, how much money is going into it. If you ask them at all, how much the maintenance costs, they will jump down your throat. And (laughs) it's just like, you're not happy. Your house is going up and you're still miserable. Why is that? And when you actually peel back the curtain, it's because even if it's gone up, they have to live in the house and they're not willing to downsize because they're already a homeowner. They're not going to change back to becoming a renter. They're not going to downgrade the house because they've already lived in that house. They've gotten used to it. There's emotional attachment to the house. So they can't get the money back out and they're still their boss's bitch and nothing has changed. So we do the math and then we look at the evidence around us and then we decided, you know what? Everybody's just playing a game of FOMO, like fear of missing out because it's like a Ponzi scheme, right? If I um, talk about my portfolio and I'm doing a 60-40 split and you're doing a 90-10, I'm not going to have an argument about, oh yeah, you need to be like using my allocation or somebody else is not investing um, in the stock market. I'm not going to scream at them to invest in the stock market. I don't care because your my success is not dependent on you investing in the market. But what we saw with the housing market was everybody was just pushing you and pushing you and saying you have to buy a house because they know if the housing market collapses, they're in big trouble. So it's almost like this, you know, Ponzi scheme to get you in and buying the house so that they can keep their home values up. And so that that mentality, we did not want to be part of that, right? Now, that's not to say every single home purchase is wrong. I mean, we have friends who live in inexpensive places in the U.S., and home ownership makes perfect sense for them. And, you know, kudos to them. They did the math, and it works perfectly fine for them. But for us, it just made no sense whatsoever. Like, where we lived made no sense. 
Everybody else was house horny <laughs> and they really, really wanted you to buy into this Ponzi scheme. And I did not want to be part of it. Uh, you know, people in the media keep saying, oh, we're anti-house. It's like, we're not actually anti-house, we're anti-debt. I mean, like the, the, the problem with, the, if you can buy a house with, with cash and it costs $150,000, uh, yeah, go for it. Sure, sure why not? Because right? it's not going to take up a big part of your uh, net worth. It's not going to put you into massive amounts of debt. And I and I, I like to like I don't like debt at all. Like there's this whole thing of uh, you know there's good debt and bad debt. And I was like I don't think there really is any good debt because debt traps you, right? Um, so if people are able to do it without going into debt, you know, find all the more power to them. But when you're in a high cost city and you end up and the only way to own this asset is to sell off the rest of your life for 25 years in a situation in which, you know, us millennials, we don't have job security the last 25 years. I, so why in the world would we ever do that? But it's just, it's old thinking. And that's kind of why we started doing this whole like revolution thing. Cause it's just kind of like the old rules don't work anymore because the old situation doesn't exist. We don't have jobs that are that stable. The media keeps yelling at us to be like, oh, millennials are flighty and they keep changing jobs. Like we don't do that because we want to. We have to do that because we're awkward because the jobs aren't stable anymore. There's no we pension a, anymore, right? And there's yeah. no pension. We live, in a, we live in a world in which we could do great on a project. The boss comes and says, great job, everyone. It went in. You're all fired. Everyone, like, I saw that. All the jobs yeah. are going I to end. I saw India. the exact, yeah, that exact scenario. I've seen it with my own eyes. So it's, yep. so it's just kind of like, yeah, we're not like... <laughs> And, and then we have to go find a new job and and add to this the stress of of, of, of having to pay off a mortgage is just not it doesn't work Absolutely. and a house like a large part of your money in your house doesn't help you retire that's what we realized afterwards that if you have a million dollar portfolio versus a million dollar house one helps you retire the other one doesn't because you can't spend a shingle off of your house to pay for your living expenses you, but you can do that with a portfolio. So it's a very, very different situation when you have all your money is stuck in a debt asset like real estate versus a liquid asset like uh, like a portfolio. One helps you become free. The other one just gets trapped. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's let's talk to those people who already have the mortgage. They've already committed. Yeah. What would you what do you think they should do? Should they uh, pay it off or should they invest? What what do you, what do you think the best thing is? I would say um, for people who are, you know, really uncomfortable with debt, there's some people that it doesn't matter. They don't want to have any debt hanging over their heads. They want to just buy the house out, outright in order to have, you know, be able to sleep at night, not have to worry about it. And that's perfectly fine. And for people who are more mathematically inclined and they're thinking, okay, if the market is going to return me, let's say 6% after inflation and my mortgage is only 3%, then maybe it makes sense for me to, you know, not pay off the mortgage and invest the money in the stock market. So it depends on the personality, right? So for someone who is really, really uncomfortable with debt, like I would not recommend them invest in the stock market and not pay off the mortgage, even if their mortgage rate is really low, because, you know, you want, like that is going to affect your health to have to like, worry about the stock market being volatile, but at the same time, you have a mortgage hanging over your head. So I think if you're more comfortable with debt, you could try to use that rule of thumb. I mean, it doesn't work for every single person, but like an overall uh, rule of thumb is if your mortgage rate is, let's say, below 4%, then maybe you can actually beat the returns in the market and then not keep a mortgage while investing in the stock market. But it really varies from person to person. And especially for you guys, since your mortgage interest rate is tax deductible in Canada, it's not, or mm -hmm. rather, it's not by default. You have to do this like trickery in order to make it tax deductible. But for you guys, it's it's by that by default. So well, what are your mortgage rates now? Like if you were to walk in and get like a 30-year rent? Probably like 5%. They've gone up a little bit. Five. Yeah. Gone up. Okay. Yeah, for okay. like a 30. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was remembering things at like 2% and like, Oh yeah, no, not just, uh, I think I got, we got our house in 2013 and we were able to get a 15 year, uh, 3% on a 15 year. So that was great. Yeah, that's pretty decent. Yeah, that's pretty good. But I was like, I was like y'all and I did not want to have any debt. So we, we paid ours off, um, Mm -hmm. because we just, we just didn't want to have it. I don't, I don't like owing people money. It makes me feel trapped. So yeah, Yeah, right. And then sometimes that, that state of mind, it really is worth it, right? Like not being the bank's (laughs) <laughs> not having to worry about it at nighttime, it, it really makes it a big difference. There's a yeah, the, the, the question that you have, which is pay off the debt, pay off or, or not pay off the debt. I, I have a rule of thumb, which is like nobody ever, um, nobody ever got poor by paying off their debt too fast, right? I mean, like it's you can't go wrong with paying off debt too badly, but you can go wrong by holding too much debt and uh, and, and screwing up, right? Yeah. So if you're not certain, pay it off more. But uh, like you know, if you're more comfortable with it, yeah, mathematically below four percent. Just uh, you, you, it's it's okay to invest that, and but above that, I'd, I'd still pay it off. Well, let's talk about building the wealth. Obviously, you guys did that a lot with investing in a taxable brokerage account. You talked a lot about a lot of those details. Thank you for sharing those. What do you guys think about? Um, I know we're talking about houses right now. What do you think about building your wealth through rental properties or, or different uh, types of uh, f- uh, formats like that? Commercial properties, anything like that? What do you, what do you think? Do you prefer do you prefer the the investing side as opposed to the rental property side? Oh yeah, we use we we we, we invest through real estate, just not through building it directly. Uh, <laughs> we use like one of the things that you can invest in is REITs or real estate investment trusts, and uh, it's just. You know, there's uh, there's indexes for REITs as well. Uh, like XRE is one of the ones that we use, and um, it's you. It ends up like owning commercial property, owning apartment buildings, nursing homes, and paying you a dividend of like you know four or five percent of the rents. So yeah, you can still do that without owning actual houses. I I would say though that to anybody who's looking to build their real estate, uh, build their wealth with commercial real estate or, or investment properties. It's a lot more complicated than you think it is because with in real estate is weird in that st- investing in the stock market feels complicated, but actually isn't while investing in real estate feels safe, but actually is a lot more complicated than you think of uh, because there are so many things that um, can go wrong with an investment property that are things that you that just don't happen in, in the stock market like, um, you know mold, like maintenance issues that are randomly hitting you, uh, a bad tenant, vacancies, um, property tax increases, a bloody hurricane coming in and blowing your house away, insurance costs. Like there's a lot of stuff in there and I'm not, and we don't say, uh, like, you know, real estate is a bad investment. It's just, I, I do know people that are, um, successful investing in, uh, you know, a rental real estates. Uh, but it's far more common for people who think that they're good at it and then actually aren't, you know, like they're, they're like these, those are the people that, oh, yeah, I own a bunch of buildings and just kind of like, what's your cash flow? Like, what do you like? Well, how much rent are you collecting? And they're just like, I don't know. What are your costs? I don't know. Are you like cash flow positive or negative? They're like, I don't know. I'm just mm. like, you know, so there's I'm a lot of unsoph- <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a, yeah, there's an uh, there's a lot of unsophisticated real estate uh, investors out there, but it, it can be done. Uh, it can be done. Um, with real estate, it just, there's a lot more to that than people think there are. We don't actually even do it either. Like uh, for all of our investing expertise, and this kind of stuff, we don't touch real estate because it's a lot, because it's, it's even beyond our ability 
to go in and like do. I think part of it is also we like things to be passive. Like I don't actually want to pick up a hammer. I don't like changing light bulbs and I don't like having to evict people. So it really depends on kind of your personality too. Like some people are really love that stuff. Like they love tearing down walls. They love, and kudos to you. If you love that, that might be the perfect path for you. Right. So I think everybody has to pick their own path. Real estate investing is perfectly valid path to fire. Um, just be aware from us talking to other real estate investors that it is a lot of work and you have to do the math and do the homework. It's and not a magic pill. And it's not passive. It's kind of another job. Yeah. You I have like to that. put in the work. I like your philosophy of less uh, things to worry about and uh, more yeah. income. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So let, let's yeah. talk about what your lives look like now. You guys retired at 31 and you're in, you're young, you're in your thirties, you're traveling. What, what does this freedom life look for you? Give it, give us a, a walk through your typical day or what's going on in your life right now. Yeah. I mean, like after we left, we wanted to, for various, you know, um, timing related reasons, uh, we needed to stay at work for like six, uh, six months in order to, you know, my boss was going on a paternity leave. So I had to cover him and this kind of stuff. So as a result, we saved up uh, more money than we thought that we would need. So, uh, after we, after we quit, we said, okay, how, how's about this? We never did that, uh, that gap year thing. You know, that annoying thing that millennials do <laughs> where they go around and backpack across Europe and find themselves. And it's like, we want that. We didn't do that. We, we never got a chance to do. We never got a chance to do that after school. Uh, we just went right to work. So we're like, let's do that annoying backpack. Yeah, thing. let's find ourselves. Let's go find ourselves. In, yeah, in, in, in Italy. Or <laughs> yeah, whatever. I didn't actually tell my coworkers when I was leaving that we were retiring. I just told them that I'm going to go find myself, and they're like, oh yeah, that sounds valid. That You're sounds about people. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally like, typical of millennials. We're all like, <laughs> anyway. So like, then okay. we did it. Oh, and we spent a year backpacking across Europe, Southeast Asia, Japan, and then like all over the States. It was a lot of fun. And then uh, at the end of the year, we wrapped back around and flew back to Canada. Uh, and that's the point where we kind of added up all the money that we spent during that gap year and then realized it was $40,000. Like it, it costs a lot. And that's when we kind of realized it costs a lot less mm. to, to travel the world than to just stay in one place in a high cost city because you live when you travel like that you live like a local you don't stay in hotels and you don't stay in uh you don't take cruise ships you you grab a, a, a you know a rental you, you cook your own food and you kind of live like you normally would just in a different location and that's the point where we kind of realize huh if we can travel the world on the same amount of money that we were planning on retiring anyway we could just do this forever and then we were like Okay, let's. Okay, so and then we booked a ticket to Japan, and then we just we've been doing it ever since. So uh, we've been traveling ever since, uh, ever since then, and it's just been amazing. I mean, like again, you know, this is this year we spent like an entire year in Europe because there was a visa that we could get that allowed us to stay here for a year, um, and then but but after that we're just going to be. Just, you know, every month we kind of go, all right, where do we want to go next? Like, let's go to Italy. Let's go to France. Let's go to like all these kinds of places. That's kind of our life now, which is pretty, pretty awesome. <laughs> that sounds incredible. Yeah. That sounds incredible. So obviously you guys have hit this, uh, this fire limit and you were able to spend your 40,000 per year with it living in perpetuity. Uh, so what, yep. what kind of personal goals or financial goals do you guys have right now that are exciting you for the next, oh, 70 years of your life? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So one of the things that's kind of been mind blowing about this lifestyle is it's the exact opposite of the cubicle lifestyle we had before, where everything was very fixed. You had to get to work at a certain time. Um, I had to work a lot of weekends, whereas now we have all the freedom in the world and everything is every day is different. So you could we could spend a day working on passion projects or volunteering. Uh, We could spend a day, you know, actually doing touristy stuff and sightseeing. So the varying the, the fact that your day is different every day makes every day feel very long. So like the first year that we actually retired, it felt like it was 10 years. Like seriously, every single day just stretched out. And then I remember when I was working that a day would just go by and then a, a year would go by and then five years would go, go by. And I'm like, where is my life going? Why is it going so fast? Um, and then, but with travel, because every single moment is different, your mind actually like clicks awake and it starts tracking all the different memories that you're making. And when you're like, because we're working on creative projects, like writing a book, writing a blog, volunteering for a nonprofit, those experiences add up to the point where you are very much aware of what is happening in your life. Whereas before I was just autopilot. I was really just like, get through the day, get these assignments done. Don't even think about what I'm going to do next because I don't have time. Um, So it really has kind of, it really has changed the way we view, um, life and the way we view, you know, basically what's the meaning of life and what does freedom mean? And all these big questions that I never really had time to ask. Like, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? You know, what are, what is our purpose and what is it that we want to work on? What is it that we want to learn? Who are the people we want to meet? So it really is kind of opens up your, your mind to all these big questions now that you don't really have to think about where your next paycheck is going to come from. And in, in terms of answering your original question, like what, what, like what are we planning on doing with all this kind of time? Well, uh, you know what? We've been um, like teaching people how to do this. I mean, like the, the, the whole like we become leaders in the fire community um, because I think people are really excited about the the lifestyle that we lead. And this whole like, um, you know, retire early and then travel the world thing is really appealing to a lot of people. Um, and we teach people how to do that uh, because there are because it's not just. Uh, about like how to invest. It's also about like the technical details about like how to like what what happened. What do you do with health insurance? What, how do you withdraw from your portfolio every year? How, like how do you uh, change your investment strategy when, like after you retire? And like what like what do you do if there's a stock market downturn? So there's like there's like those kinds of questions and those kinds of things that we're trying to um, to teach people how to do. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I wrote the blog. So that's kind of what we've been devoting ourselves to, for, and we're probably going to be doing that for a while because you know the the fire uh the whole fire space it just seems to be like as you noticed kind of blowing up a little bit mm-hmm. the the fire idea is actually uh, i think the first it was first kind of coined by uh vicky robin back in your money your life and that was like 20 ish years ago right mm-hmm. and it for some for whatever reason there is this um explosion of interest in it like now and now everyone kind of wants to know about it and how to do it and all this kind of stuff so yeah we're gonna we're probably gonna be busy for the next little while that's great well you're giving back that's that's an incredible thing to do so so there's a parent listening right now that says this sounds great i'd love to travel the world but i've got little kids how do i how do i give them school how do they you know how do i do the things i'm supposed to do right get them in a good school district how can i do that if i'm traveling the world talk to us a little bit about that That is actually a really good question because that's a question we asked ourselves uh, when we actually decided to do this permanent, you know, nomadicism kind of lifestyle. So we asked ourselves and we said, okay, well, if we decide to have kids, obviously we have to stop doing this and we have to settle down somewhere. What is that going to look like? 
And the funny thing is, as a result of traveling, we actually ended up meeting um, this this woman and her son. So she was in uh, Mexico at the time. She was in Tulum and we were in the same Airbnb. And then I noticed that it wasn't the summer and she had taken her son out for during the school year and been traveling for a couple months. So I, I asked her, I was like, is, is that allowed? Like, how come you he's not, it's not part of the summer and you still have your son with you for so long. And she's like, oh, I'm part of something called world schooling. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is a real thing. I thought that this is just something like, wow, this is amazing. Tell me more about it. Um, so then we discovered that there's a uh, Facebook community of over 40,000 people um, that are part of this new um, idea that you you could use the world as your classroom to ed- educate your children. Um, this movement kind of started as a result of 2008, where um, a lot of families were worried about their financial security because of what happened in the stock market. They were worried about all the mortgage that they were paying on their house. Um, so they decided to start traveling and because they, they discovered that that was actually cost reducing rather than cost increasing. Um, so they started this whole community about how to educate kids on the road and using the school, using the world to teach their kids about currency conversion, teach them about history. Like why learn about the Vietnam war in a classroom when you can just go to Vietnam and actually find out exactly what happened. And then a lot of their children, um, can speak multiple different languages because they actually grew up with um, like speaking to locals in different areas. Uh, so we have been doing quite a bit of research um, talking to the leaders of this community. And that's in the book. There's a lot of resources that we've been given um, that this is not only a um, like a community that's quite large and growing. They've actually um, have a lot of methods for teaching their kids, depending on how old their children are, depending on the type of education method that's appropriate for their child. Like you can actually buy kits online. There is teachers that are online that are willing to um, work with you to provide a curriculum for your children. Uh, Some of them send them to correspondence schools or international schools while they're abroad and living like expats. So there's actually multiple different ways to educate your children. And so that's one of the paths that we would like to go down if we actually decide to have a child in the future, and we do know that, and we do know there are some other FI bloggers. Uh, Jeremy from um, Go Curry Packers, Packers is an example who is traveling the world, uh, retired and with a young kid. Um, so yeah, so there's there's lots of actual options out there, and it's, it's kind of amazing when you think about like all these different kind of ways of living your life. One of the coolest things that we have discovered when as we started traveling is. You start meeting people who are living these like weird, non-standard lives, mm-hmm. and and then you start going like, "Wow, I didn't even know that that was possible." The world schooler uh, uh, woman had no idea what the fire movement was. The fire movement had no idea what the world schooler movement was. We had no idea like, th- and that was literally the first contact either of us, either of our groups had ever had con- like whatever. So she's asking us about like, so how does this whole retire? Because like they they don't like they are not concerned or not um, they're not concerned about it, but their movement is just about the education stuff it doesn't even talk about how to make money nomadically or, or, or anything like that but fire is is this whole like now that you do this you don't need to worry about money anymore so when you combine those two ideas obvious like some now you have this weird synergy thing going on which is you don't have to work you don't have to stop traveling you can travel with your kids and educate them on the road and it all just kind of works so wow. it's like yeah it's a really cool it, it's a really cool like worlds that were that were <laughs> that we're still now learning about so yeah that's I love that. I love it. When fire and world schooling combine, that's beautiful. 
yeah. Very yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. I know you're traveling abroad and living this lifestyle. I appreciate you guys taking time to speak with me today. Where can people find this new book and connect with you? Okay. Um, so our book is called Quit Like a Millionaire. Uh, it's being published by Penguin Random House. And um, so we will have the links to our book and information on our website at www.millennial, with two L's, dash revolution.com. Excellent. Well, thank you guys both so much for your time today and enjoy your chasing of the sun. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. It is amazing to see what two salaries, a high savings rate, and a great marital partnership can do. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Christy Shen and Bryce Lung. Number one, buying too much house can drown you. When Christy and Bryce were talking about not wanting a mortgage and a home to control their lives, man, did that hit home. It's not just the mortgage, the repairs, the maintenance, the upgrades, the updates, the furniture, the landscaping, and the weeds, man. The weeds, there's so many weeds. Uh, Hold on, I gotta take a breath. (sighs) In short, make sure you can afford the house, my friends, and everything that goes with it, including the weeds. (laughs) Or in Christy and Bryce's case, maybe you just don't buy it at all. Number two, use the 4% rule for your roundabout fire number. Want to know how much it'll take for you to fire like Christy and Bryce? Try the 4% rule. Take your annual expenses and multiply them by 25. If you spend $40,000 per year to live, then you need $1 million to fire. Or 4% of $1 million is $40,000. So that's where the 4% rule comes in, right? This is a quick and dirty rule and everybody's situation is different. So please don't take this as gospel strip scripture, you know, the the only rule. Everyone's situation is different. Number three, think about your health and your emotions before money. If you feel like your stress will go down without a mortgage, work to pay it off. If you feel like you'd be happier with a boatload of cash and investments as opposed to a paid off mortgage, then do that. There's no one right answer. There's just your right answer. And a lot of that boils down to your emotions, your feelings, and your overall mental well-being. Yes, money helps you feel warm and fuzzy for sure. I'm, I'm all about that. But at the end of the day, you have to follow what you believe works best for you and your family. Christy and Bryce, thanks so much for taking time to chat with us today and sharing your awesome story. I wish you two the best of luck with your adventures going forward. What an Honestly, what an awesome way to spend your marriage. Very cool. As a quick reminder, everybody, this show is for entertainment purposes only. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific financial situation. Before we go for the day, I'd like to ask you to do any one of these three things to support this show. Number one, connect with me on Facebook or Instagram at Andy Hill MKM. That's Andy Hill MKM. Number two, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Just do it right now. Push the button. It's purple. It's blue, whatever, you know, just push it. (laughs) And the last thing, share this episode with a friend who wants to reduce their expenses, increase their happiness and achieve financial independence. 
like Christy and Bryce. You can find this show and all the links and resources mentioned at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 143. And if you're new to the show, I'd highly recommend you check out session 116, the 10 steps to young family wealth and happiness. You can find that at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash session 116. It is a great place to start. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from Margaret Bonanno. Being rich is having money. Being wealthy is having time. Here's to owning your time, my friends. Carpe diem. 